Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Andy's Treasure Trove, the interview podcast where I share some of my favorite people, places, things, and ideas with you and for posterity. Over the last 10 years, I've chatted with filmmakers, writers, performers, and other artists, as well as many fascinating and category-defying people who are part of my own personal treasure trove and should be part of yours too. This is episode 21, and this time my conversation is with a man named Hugh King. He's also known as Chopper King from the TV show Biker Build-Off Motorcycle Mania. What I've selected from our conversation for this episode has to do with three distinct parts of Hugh's life that I found especially interesting. One, his childhood pyromania. Two, the part he played in the anti-war GI coffeehouse movement during the Vietnam War in the late 1960s and early 70s. And finally, his late career emergence into the persona of Chopper King. Let's listen. This story is central to my life. and it, it, It's part of who I am. When I was eight, my parents were fighting. We lived in New Jersey because my, my dad was having an affair with the, quote, French woman, unquote. And my mom was getting sick of it. She'd put up with his ways during the war, but when he came home, I think she expected him to act differently. My parents were having a hard time of it, and they were arguing bitterly. And they moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to try and patch things up. But it was a hell year for my sister and I, because they were fighting every night, bitterly. And we didn't understand why, and they never explained to us. Because that was, you never said anything to your kids at that point. Everything was kind of swept under the rug. And there was, everything was about appearances. And so we knew emotionally that there was, the shit was hitting the fan. But consciously, there was, there was no talk about it. In fact, we had formal dinner every night. I got dressed up for dinner every night, brushed my hair, so as did my sister. And we had this lovely Saturday evening post-type meal every night. But it was like... The surface was intact, but the morale was cracked. And and we used to, I remember we used to hover on the landing while my parents went at each other in the most atrocious way. I mean, they didn't hit each other. There was no knives or clubs, or but it was this physical knockdown drag out. And I, it must have upset me terribly. Beside that, my father had come out from the war just, I'm going to write a book about this sometime. No one ever has. But I was my mother's darling for four years. And that who the hell was this guy? <laughs> he came back from the war and I hated him on the spot. Or I didn't know who he was. He was a complete stranger, my, my dad. And many kids at that juncture had that experience. And I don't think anybody's ever writ- written about it because it traumatized us and you know, that's why I'm so crazy to this day, probably. Or I have problems. I'm not crazy. I have some uh, shortcomings, let's put it that way. Things that have kept me back from something. 
Anyway, I became a pyromaniac, and I, I'm going to jump forward. Um, let's see, so I was eight then. So if you subtract eight from 70, and I'm going to be 70 in a month, um, that is 62 years ago when I lived in Milwaukee. And I recently visited there because I was there for um, <clears throat> one of my TV shows about choppers, about motorcycles. And I'm the ho I was sort of the semi-host. And I met these bike builders there, and I set them on their way. And I decided, God, I'm going to go see this house in Milwaukee where I grew up. I'm going to find it. And I did. I found it quite easily. And it looked pretty much as I remembered it, except the street was much nicer. In fact, it was a lovely street. And so, and I brought my little digital camera with me, and I was taking a picture of the house, and the lady who lived there came out and asked me, you know, what are you doing? And I said, I'm taking a picture of this house. And she said, why? And I said, because I used to live here. She said, so really? I said, yeah, I lived here right after the Second World War. She said, well, why don't you come in? So she invited me in. And I think she, by the end of my visit, she wished she hadn't. <laughs> because what the first thing I, that happened is we went upstairs to what used to be my bedroom, this little room on the second floor overlooking the street. I said, oh, yeah. And at this point, it was not a bedroom. It was a study. I said, yeah, this used to be my bedroom. This is a room I almost burned down. <laughs> and she said, what? I, I said, yes. I said, I was complete pyro when I was eight. I was having issues, and I was acting out like crazy. And one afternoon I was throw, throwing um, darts out the window which had uh, cotton balls on the dart end which I dipped in alcohol and lit on fire <laughs> and I threw them out the window and I guess one of them caught the curtain on fire as it went out and I went down to retrieve it and when I came back up my sister thank God was throwing great buckets of water on the wall because the a flame had ignited the curtains, cloth, drape, and gone right up the wall. And they caught it, or it would have burned the house down. And she said, oh, well, okay, that's fine. <laughs> when I noticed, she had a little odd look in her face. But she was pretty, you know, game. She understood. I was just a little kid. So then <clears throat> we went to down the basement. I said, oh, the basement. My dad used to cook bread here. He was in yeast business at this point, and he was way into making bread. And there was a stove in an oven over here, and this is right here is where Jerry Heindel and I almost burned the house down. <laughs> I said, yeah, we were lighting bonfires on the floor here. And we had a a rubber, um, what they call a pulley, um, automotive pulley, circle, rubber. And we had the bonfires inside the rubber pulley, and we assumed that this 
far I couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> but anyway, my mom caught us, and I caught holy hell for that. And they were really angry at me, and justifiably so, and I ran away. But then I came back. Did you run away with a, a little kerchief t- <clears throat> tied to the end of a stick? No, I think I just ran away. <laughs> but then I came back, and I went in the garage, and I slept in the car. And they never did find me. So then, I think at that point, my sister was breaking streetlights in the park. That was her thing. That was her thing. And we were also stealing little, um, there were little metal treats in the bottom of Cracker Jack boxes. Real nice little cars and stuff. And we were going in there, or my sister was. She was going in there and prying open the bottom of the boxes and stealing this stuff right out of them without buying up the Cracker Jacks. Well, we got into a lot of hell for that. Then, me and my friend, we were playing with matches under the pine tree in the front yard. And the neighbors, and this was Milwaukee, Wisconsin, called very law-abiding. My mother couldn't stand the police. She was from the South. She never understood those people. And they didn't understand her. And it was cold, and she she hated to be cold. And she was not happy there. And I was not happy there. I don't think my sister was particularly happy there either. But the one that really got this woman, present-day owner of the house, was <laughs> when we... <laughs> We looked out the window across Summit Avenue, little nice shady street in Milwaukee, and I said, oh, yes, that's the house that the lady lived in who kicked my dog. My dog peed on her manicured golf green type lawn, and she came out and kicked my dog. Well, I wasn't going to stand for that. So me and my friend Jerry again, we sent her a death threat. <laughs> and what we did is we <laughs> we got a piece of paper and we wrote on it, and I should remember this, word for word. You will die in your bed at midnight if you do not deliver $25,000. <laughs> To the quarter of Summon in Bellevue, you will die in your bed at midnight. And we put little bloody daggers all around it, and we roasted it in the oven to give it that kind of pirate <laughs> death threat look. And we put it in her mailbox. She called the FBI. Milwaukee, mind you. She called the FBI. Well, they... They figured out who it was in about five minutes. So late one night, there's a knock at the door. It's dark. It's always dark in Milwaukee. <laughs> and, um, and there are these two guys in suits and overcoats, pork pie hats, you know, open the door and they say, this is the FBI. Are your parents home? When we talked to my parents, and my friend Jerry was with them. They'd gone and gotten Jerry first. So while they're talking to my parents, Jerry and I are in the little drawing room there. 
And he says, Hugh, we're in deep trouble. We're eight years old at this time. He said, we've been busted by the FBI. They came and they got me. They put me in the back of the squad car. And he said, in the hallway over here, I was sitting on a stack of submachine guns. He said, we're in, we're in serious problem here. We're in difficulty. It's all over. Anyway, these guys came in and said to us, these little kids, do you realize that you're guilty of the federal crime of extortion? And we looked at each other and we, what's that? <laughs> you know, what's extortion? What the hell is that? And they, you know, they lectured us and, and they left. And you know what? I have to think. My parents were really pissed off at them. What then? With them. They thought it was ridiculous. Overkill. Complete overkill. Which it was. Which it was. Especially if the woman knew that it was the neighbor kids. I don't know. That's Milwaukee. So at eight years old, I was arrested, <clears throat> but not charged with extortion. So that was a rough year for me, besides breaking a few windows and lighting a few more fires. Were you successful at actually burning anything down? No. No. We almost burned the garage down. <laughs> but, so then, that was horrible. But, you know, going back, when you look back on it, 68 years later, it's, it's ridiculous. And, then, and 62 years later, that's ridiculous because, well, first of all, it's, it's kind of it's not funny that a little kid would be acting out this way. But what's funny is that this woman, is me telling the story to the woman. And believe me, towards the end of my little visit, she ushered me out. <laughs> she, was, she, was, she was very nervous. And uh, that's my Milwaukee story. Was she alone in the house? Well, no, her her uh, boring daughter came in who was alarmed, became immediately alarmed that I, I was even in the house. Well, well how were you dressed yeah. and how do you think you Well, I was to dressed like the Chopper King. You know, I had all my biker drag on with my leather vest with a big skull on the back and stuff like that and my boots. So I did look a little bit outlandish i suppose i'm kind of surprised she invited you in in the first place well i have an honest face mm -hmm. you know it's just like people invite you in right i know you can go in practically anywhere right people always say yes to you right correct they used to say yes more often oh, oh. um but yeah i can still usually mm -hmm. you get have around. that boyish face <laughs> In around 68, 69, 70, there was a whole movement in the United States. It was called the Coffee House Movement. And what it was is radicals were going to the... They, were, they was called coffee houses because they were establishing coffee houses on the edges of major military bases in the United States. And they went to um, uh, Fort Bragg, Fort Sill, 
Fort Hood in, in Washington, Fort Ord in California, and there was one on Fort Dix, New Jersey, which was a major jump-off point for Vietnam. So the radicals, a lot of people from SDS, which was a Student for a Democratic Society, which was the radical arm of the student movement, established, they were called coffee house collectives. And so you not only had this coffee house where you, out of which you published propaganda and newspaper, but you had to live someplace. In this particular case, we had a farmhouse near Fort Dix. It was an abandoned farmhouse, which we rented, and we all lived there. But in the daytime, we went to the coffee house, which was a converted Carvel stand. And Carvel was soft ice cream stand, and we turned it into this action center where, where the GIs would come, the soldiers would come after they got off duty, and we would foment, you know, we would foment trouble and revolution. And, You're talking about cappuccino, right? And, yeah, no, not talking about cappuccino. We were about fomenting trouble. And they would work on the newspaper and they would write articles in the, what they had seen in Vietnam and what the army was up to. And it was very insurrectionary. And, and the army pretended like they didn't notice it, but we caused a lot of problems. And rightly so, because we wanted to stop it, the war in Vietnam. And by the way, we helped do it. There's no question about it. I'm very proud of that period of my life that I went from not a political person to a political person, mostly because of what was happening in Vietnam. And I had been in the army myself, and I didn't want to see. It was wrong. Our young soldiers were being killed over there. And I, at that point in my life, was determined to stop it. So we, we went down. We, the coffee house had already been started. And it was, it was high drama, and it was dangerous. It was truly dangerous, because there were a lot of people in the military that wanted to kill us. And uh, we had soldiers there who had um, been shot in Vietnam. We had soldiers there who had been involved in a stockade insurrection, where they tried to burn the Fort Dix stockade down. They were called the Fort Dix 18 or something like that. There was a lot of crazy stuff going on at that time. and But we were also naive. We were tremendously naive. We didn't know the forces that we were dealing with. But we had the moral authority. When you have the moral authority, or when you sense that you have the moral authority, nothing can stop you. You are an unstoppable force. That's like Joan of Arc. She had the moral authority. So we felt the same way. And we, you know what? We did have the moral authority because that is, as it's turned out, what we were doing was absolutely correct. We were doing a good thing, although we were vilified mightily. Anyway, it was hot and it was fun and it was dangerous and it was an experiment in living. And we all lived in this farmhouse. And... <laughs> And, you know, we partied every night. We were smoking tons of dope. The GIs would come home, and they would all be dropping acid. They would be listening to um, 
what's that band? Uh, Led Zeppelin was their favorite band. So they'd be stoned all night listening to Led Zeppelin, and we hardly ever slept because we were so keyed up about what we were doing. We were young, you know, so we had tons of energy. But we also knew, I mean, we weren't totally stupid. There, there were a lot of people out that were like out there to kill us, you know. They were gonna something terrible was gonna happen. So we had a security system, and we had night watch, and we had we were armed. We were armed to the teeth. We got, you know, I got a shotgun from my dad. He gave me a shotgun. We had old rifles and you know, a few crackpots that had Molotov cocktails and we were you know, we were ready that some night they were gonna come and try and get us. Um and they actually did. They actually did. I mean the Minutemen did actually try to get us one night and we had a shootout with them in the woods, a brief shootout. But our our trump card is the people, half the people who were staying in the house were soldiers. They had just got back from Vietnam and they were no st- stranger to automatic weapons. So there was a brief firefight and then the Minutemen split. Nothing, nobody got hurt. So then we decided we better beef up security. So this is the funny part. <laughs> so we said, well, what do we got to do first? Well, We've got to dig foxholes all around the house. Because when the shooting starts, we're all going to run out of the house, jump in the foxholes. And we had this whole escape, elaborate escape plans. We'd go from foxhole to foxhole, and then we would get in these cars and try to speed out of there. And It seemed logical at the time, but when I look back on it, it was ridiculous. And then we also said, we're going to, um, we're going to barricade the windows. And so we spent a couple of days or three days spreading chicken wire over the windows and stapling the chicken wire so that, you know, when they came to throw the tear gas canisters through the windows, they wouldn't, they wouldn't go through. And so everyone think, oh, okay, now we're set. We okay. We have our guns. We have ammunition. We have our Molotov cocktails. <laughs> And plenty of acid and coffee. <laughs> plenty of acid. Tons of marijuana. I mean, we're really set here. And uh, I think this plan was conceived, you know, in an, a- uh, in an acid trip, maybe. But that was okay. You know, it was perfectly valid at the time. So we decided, look, it seems to be safe and foolproof here. We better have a dry run. So... <laughs> What we did is, and I, I guess we had decided to do this a couple of weeks after we dug the foxholes and put the wire up and so forth. What we decided to do is have like a dry run, like a fire drill. And we did it during the day, not at night, so we could see what happened. So everybody got in the house, and we rang the alarm, which we had. We had an alarm. We rang the alarm. Everybody get, came running out of the house. They jumped in the foxhole. Only thing that they'd forgotten is that it rained <laughs> the previous week. And it was like six feet of water <laughs> that they jumped into. 
<laughs> and then I got these like number six cans of um, peas, cans of peas, petty, what do they call petty four or the petty, petty peas, little tiny French peas, petty point. And I had about five or six of those because I figured that would be about the size of a gas, of a tear gas canister. And I heaved them at the windows. And they went right straight through and hit the wall on the inside. It was like there was no barrier there at all. They not only went through the chicken wire, they went right through the glass. I think it was soon after that we decided we were in an unsafe position. We better get the hell out of there. And, um, but not till we had this massive demonstration where we actually got them to cancel the biggest military event there is, which is called Armed Forces Day, where they have flyovers and formations. We actually got them to cancel it. And I had my little kids with me at the time, which they hate me for to this day. But I told them, listen, when the shooting starts, you just go get up, go upstairs and get in the cast iron bathtub. You'll be okay. Is that what they did during the drill? Yes. <laughs> While their father was throwing the And they never forgiven me to this day. I think you cared enough to tell them to get in the bath instead of jump into the mud hole. Well, yeah, but I mean, Jesus, God, would you, I mean, any reasonable person wouldn't have their little kids down in a dangerous situation like not, not that. Not with the guns and the... Not with that. I mean, yeah. that's so stupid. But we thought we were invincible. I had my 15 minutes of fame. The Chopper King is, is, a, is a, a great moment in my past. Um, yeah, I, I did a series called Biker Build-Off, Motorcycle Mania. And I was the executive producer. producer. And in the middle of it, I sort of became the host. I started inserting myself in the shows as the lawgiver and the decider of conflicts and also the trophy giver-outer. And then so I, I started to be more and more on camera. And then since my last name is King, I got the nickname Chopper King. And then I started to be um, a character, like a TV, a known TV character. And I loved it. I still love it. I wish it would come back. I don't think it will. <laughs> so I had T-shirts and I had my own logo. You know, just this. You ever see the logo? I think it's so. It's a skull remember. with with tribal flames all around. It's very yeah. cool. And I got free merch. You know, people were laying all these high-priced garments on me. Like, I have this gorgeous leather vest with sterling silver buttons and this embossed. Um, Chopper King logo on the back with um, it, it also has um, a, like a stingray inlay to it very jazzy um, then I have this beautiful leather shirt with you know it's like a thousand dollar shirt that people were just giving me because once you start appearing on TV you became a, you become a clothes rack for them and then people will give you stuff so that they're it's called product placement. And they have this beautiful pair of boots that are made up. And they have stingray pattern on them. I also got a motorcycle <clears throat> that was made for me on TV. 
and was given to me on TV. I still have it. You ever see it? I have. You've seen a picture of it. It's this bitchin' chopper. In fact, um, later, can we kind of take a picture of it so my listeners can see it? Well, it's not here. Oh, it's not here. No. But I have a card with a picture of it on it. And, uh, you know, it's this death machine, really. It's got a... Um, the fender comes to a bayonet point. The, the um, intake tanks look like... Um, they have like a scalloped edge that, that looks like devil's talons. It's... And it's got a 150-horsepower motor in it, which is monstrous for a motorcycle. You know, it'll go it'll go 0 to 60 faster than a Ferrari. Not that I've ever done that, but it'll do it. Right. So it's quite the machine. I've ridden it. Not a whole lot, but some. I got to ride it in Bonneville, Salt Flats, which was one that, of the great experiences of my life. And so I had this, I have my, my machine, I have my boots, I have my shirt, you know, I have my ponytail. So I created, or this look evolved, and I became known as Chopper King. So I get stopped in airports. Hey, Chopper King, how you doing? Love your show. And uh, hey, Chopper King, sign my uh, uh, autograph book and photo ops and it was great. It was like I was um, Tom Cruise or something <laughs> for about 15 seconds. <laughs> now, you know, nobody notices me. I'm just no longer, you know, a grand TV persona. In fact, I'm not a TV persona at all, but at least I've been there and I've tasted fame 15 seconds of it. And it was it's fun. It's hard work, too. Well, I would imagine yeah. that, yeah, like, it's sort of like a double life. I mean, you think you're walking through the airport and suddenly you're on. Yeah, yeah, you're on. You have to be. Well, I'm friendly. I mean, I'm I'm an outgoing, you know, I like to shake people's hands. and I, just, I like people, you know. I, I'm not, I can be reclusive, but I'm actually very comfortable with people and you know, I have a good time with people, and I like them, and I generally respect people. There are a few people out there who can go, you know, go to hell. But the majority of people are just, I, I like them as people, people. And I get along well with the general public. So, you know, somebody stopped me in the airport, all well and good. Now, but if you're really famous, I think it's overwhelming. I would imagine it must be. It is. It's overwhelming. That's when you have to get into all the disguises and yeah. security details yeah. and all that. So just having a touch of it is okay. But um, if you had to wade through a phalanx of people every day or when you went outside, you'd go crazy. It's and be really very aggressive difficult. press and so forth. Yeah, but, you, Paparazzi. but the minute you get nasty, is they crucify you. Right. So well, fortunately, then. I never reached that position. I hope that you feel mostly fortunate for your little, you know, that period of time and not, not you know, too uh, wistful about losing it. Well, I want it back, you know. I'd do anything to get it back, but can't think of what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that reminds me of a book by Barbara Sher. I could do anything if only I knew what it was. Yeah, that's right. 
But also, you also I'll kiss any ass. Just I don't know where. You know, just tell me where. <laughs> um, your story reminded me. My dad became acquainted with Joe D'Alessandro. Okay. And Joe D'Alessandro's business card at the time said, yeah. "Joe D'Alessandro, former Warhol superstar, will work for food." Yeah, that's what it's like. But if you think of Hollywood here. What you can think of is the legion of people who at one time were in your consciousness but are no longer there. Like, think of um, Saturday Night Fever and John Travolta's dancing partner. What is her name? Where did she go? Right. She disappeared. They disappear, people. <laughs> you know. um, so many people have have been there and then they're not there. They're gone. And I think I've heard, or, you know, at least seen in, mm. in movies, um, people can, can get addicted to or obsessed with that former yes. notoriety and, mm. and, and feel less than. And they go crazy and they kill themselves and, or they get on drugs and they miss it. It's because it's, it's a rush. You know, when you get recognized by people, absolute strangers people want to take your picture and, and so forth and so on it's a super mega um, shot of coffee to the ego and you and you I mean I was never in that position but you can certainly get addicted to it and when it's not there anymore you turn to drugs which I haven't done yet <laughs> <laughs> Well, for a pyromaniacal, chopper-writing, former militant radical, Hugh is actually a very nice man and a pleasure to be friends with. You can see a photo of him as Chopper King on andystreasuretrove.com. And while you're there, you can also view a recent video of Hugh at the controls of a disabled Titan II missile that we visited together at the Titan Missile Museum here in Tucson, Arizona, a few months ago. It's worth checking out. My thanks to Hugh for sharing his stories with us. And next time, we'll hear from Hugh's wife, Karen Peterson, about her work at the Writers Guild of America Library, where she was head librarian. I hope you'll listen then. Meanwhile, won't you please share my podcast widely and leave a review of the show on iTunes? I thank you very, very much. Bye for now. <laughs>